We're going to be in Genesis 28. Let me read what we're going to talk about. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, verse 13, Yahweh stood above it. You may have a different translation there, or you may have a note there. Remember that. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh's in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Father, I pray that this day, by your spirit, that we might comprehend this incredible story, that maybe paradigms and perceptions that are incorrect would be reshaped by your scripture. So may your spirit speak and move and may we have understanding. And I pray this in your son's name, amen. I really like this chapter. It's one of my favorites. And what I'm gonna try to do today is pretty simple. I don't think I'll be long. I did get a little bit longer in first service than I wanted to, but I don't think I'll be long. And my main goal is this. I want to rotate the diamond of scripture so that you can see a different facet of its brilliance. Because the truth is this. Every one of us comes to scripture with certain presuppositions. What's a presupposition? It's things that you already believe about it. And because you already believe it about it, what happens is you begin to find what you already believe in the Bible, right? So some people just say, hey, the Bible is a normal 
book. There's nothing supernatural about it. And they'll read and they'll find evidence for that. On the very other spectrum, some people believe that it's a magic book that you can just like, I need God to speak to me and open your Bible and like put your finger on a verse. Like Deuteronomy 23, 13. When you go to the bathroom, bury it. What? (laughs) I'm not sure I wanted that answer. That does not help me. Like I I dealt with this guy for a while and he, it was about 10 years ago, he had got into drugs and then he was selling drugs and had kind of double-crossed some people that sold drugs and he was afraid for his life. And so I'm, I'm trying to walk with him and help him. And then one day he's like, dude, I'm not afraid anymore. I said, what happened? He's like, this right here. I'm like, oh, you got a Bible. Awesome. Yeah. I said, well, why aren't you afraid anymore? Because I carry this wherever I'm at and I'm no longer afraid. I said, well, do you read it? Oh no, I don't read it. I just carry it. I said, buddy, that's not going to protect you. The only protection it's going to offer is if the drug dealers, when they come and find you, if they hit the Bible instead of you, that's the only way it's going to protect you. So sometimes we get this kind of magic side of it and we bring these presuppositions to scripture and they begin to guide really what we see. And it happens all the time. So I'll give you some examples. If there's a new person at work and someone at work already knows this guy and they say, oh yeah, I know that guy. He's lazy, good for nothing. What's going to happen the next time you see that guy just sitting down on his break? You're going to look at him and you go, yeah, lazy, good for nothing because it's already in your brain. You're looking now for evidence to back that up. If someone tells you a new girl at school is a flirt and then you see her talking to a guy, what are you going to think? She's a flirt, even though she might be sharing Jesus with that guy, right? You, you, you then look for evidence for your presupposition. So if someone said, hey, Matt has these giant biceps, what will you see? <laughs> we all bring that to scripture. So scripture is almost like this. It's almost like a Rorschach test. You know what that is? It's what a psychologist or a psychiatrist, it's an ink blot, and they'll hand you this ink blot and they'll say, what do you see? Well, there's nothing on the ink blot. What it is, it's actually telling them what's inside of you already. And you're just now expressing that. Sometimes I think the Bible is that, that we bring these presuppositions to it. And it's really a mirror of what's going on inside of us. It's not actually what's in the Bible. And so what happens is we begin to, because of our childhood experience, because of church, because of other people, we begin to build an image of God. And I think sometimes the image we end up with at, at the very conclusion of our theology, it's more like Frankenstein than God. We create kind of a monster. We just kind of put them together by these other kind of pieces. And we're like, yeah, I think that's what God is like. And it's, it's not God at all. So what I want to try to do today is back us out of maybe some presuppositions and give us a different view because I think Genesis is giant theology. I don't think you have to go to the New Testament to discover who God is, but I believe God is disclosing himself to these slaves he set free from Egypt who are now wandering in a wilderness and he's saying, this is what I'm like. I'm going to tell you through the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, I'm gonna tell you what I'm like. So you get big theology in Genesis. It's really the first declaration of God, his theology, all right? So that's what my hope is. 
Are you ready for that? Doesn't really matter because I am and I got the mic. So we're doing this. So to kind of pick those of you that maybe are jumping in in the middle of the story, let me pick up where we're at in these verses. Here's what's happened. Isaac and Rebekah couldn't have kids for 20 years. They pray. They end up conceiving. Rebekah, at about eight months or so, she starts to notice the kids in her womb are constantly fighting. So she prays, God, what's going on? God reveals to her, there are twins in your belly and they're going to go at it. And the older is going to serve the younger. There's a prophecy about Jacob and Esau. So they're born, right? They grow up. Rebecca's favorite is Jacob. Isaac's favorite is Esau. And Isaac in chapter 27 wants to push off of God's will. I don't want God's will to happen because my favorite is Esau. So he tries to get Esau and tries to bless Esau. But then Rebecca hears about that. She grabs Jacob, dresses him up like Esau, sends him in to lie five times to his blind dad to steal the blessing from Esau. When Esau discovers this, he is angry. So angry, he wants to murder Jacob. And so Rebecca talks to Isaac, her husband, and says, you have to send Jacob away. You have to send him to Laban, my brother, so that Esau won't kill him. But she doesn't give him that reason. She says, so he'll marry a different wife. So that's how we get where we're at. So Jacob now has been sent away and he has been sent away penniless. How do you know he's been sent away penniless? Look at verse 11. Yep. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. I have a gift. I can sleep just about anywhere. I can sleep in airports, in airplanes. It doesn't, I can sleep in the car, hopefully when I'm not driving, but I can sleep anywhere, right? Like sometimes it's, it's not a gift, it's a curse. So I don't know, six years ago, I'm in Brazil, headed to visit my brother-in-law who's a missionary down there. And I'm in a layover at an airport and I fell asleep. I was in such a deep sleep that I got robbed. And they grabbed my backpack and it ended up in the women's bathroom in this airport and they took everything out of it. It was just like all my stuff's all over the bathroom there in Manaus. And the only thing that they actually took (laughs) when all my stuff was gathered back together and given back to me, they took a flashlight, a bar of soap and one shirt. They're like, this guy has the most terrible taste. I don't want any of his clothes. (laughs) I mean, that's really what they were saying. It was really funny. Word of that got back here when I'm still down there. And one of my daughters was telling people at church, she's a bit younger then, was telling everybody at church, uh, my daddy's underwear were all over the women's bathroom. I'm like, sure, context, we need context. We're crying out loud. (laughs) There's one thing I require to sleep, a pillow. So guess what I will make into a pillow? Anything, a jacket, shirts, my socks, a shoe, it doesn't matter. I'm going to take my back. I'm going to make something into a pillow. What doesn't Jacob have? Anything to make in to a pillow. So why is he so penniless? Because if you know his family heritage, Abraham was Bill Gates, right? Rich, 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 rich. Isaac, Jeff Bezos, rich, 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 rich. If Isaac wanted to, he could ascend. Uh, Jacob off with 10 camels and servants and provisions and everything in the world. And he doesn't. Why not? 
Because he had just been deceived by him. And he was mad. And he's saying, okay, God, if you're going to make this prophecy come true, you make it come true. Go ahead. I'm sending him off penniless. Very unlike Matthew, or Genesis 24, when there's a caravan sent to the same place and it's 10 camels and all this provision and gold and stuff. This is very different. It's Isaac saying, okay, fine, God. Let's see you do it on your own. That's what, God, that's what he's doing. Because he's mad at Jacob who stood and lied to him five times to his face. All right? So it's in the midst of this, right? In the midst of this, you got the lowest point in Jacob's life. Older brother hates him, wants to murder him. He's being sent away from his family. He'll never see his mother again. His dad has displayed his dislike for him in sending him away penniless. He's, his character, bankrupt, deceitful, liar, conniving. He's in the cellar, deepest valley of his life. And what happens to him in this deep valley? It's verse 13. Look what happens. It says there, and behold, Yahweh stood above it. You might have a different translation there. I know a little bit of Hebrew, took two terms of it, uh, but I check with Hebrew scholars and there's a divide on them. Some say that God stood above the ladder, but a whole group of them says, no, the right way to translate this is Yahweh stood beside him. I think that's the right translation. In my Bible, it has a note that says that. So Yahweh, in Jacob's most decrepit, darkest day, what happens? Yahweh comes down and stands beside him and says to him, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing and you're going to have a ton of kids and they're going to stretch out from the north and the south and the east and the west. And only that, I'll be with you and I will not leave you until all these things I have spoken of come true. I'm going to be Emmanuel for you. What did Jacob do to earn and deserve God coming to him and promising him these things? Nothing, right? He is the worst dude on the planet at this point. He's terrible. And God comes and makes these incredible promises to him. It's unbelievable. For me, this is one of those chapters that was the process of dismantling my Frankenstein. It was one of those chapters where I'm like, that's crazy. Because I grew up with a understanding that God was angry at me and he was ready to pound me. One mistake, he's coming down. And so that caused me then to just push away and actually run away from God. Well, if he's going to pound me, I'm going to get as far away from him as possible. But then I read this story about Jacob. And I think maybe I was wrong. Maybe the image that I set up is a Frankenstein and it's not right. So here's what I'm going to try to do to you. I'm going to present two ways of viewing the big story of the Bible. I'm going to use chairs to do it. Because I think it, sometimes you just got to have a visual. So bear with me. I did this in the first service. I asked for really light chairs. They're not very light. Even with my giant biceps. <laughs> I have a bad shoulder. That's the problem. Okay. So 
gospel in chairs. Take one. In the beginning, there was God. And God created everything. And God created an image bearer that he could have a face-to-face love relationship with. But love demands a choice. And so the image bearers chose to eat of the forbidden fruit and turn their back on God. And God, who is holy and just, could not view their sin. So God turned his back on the image bearers. And the image bearers continued to turn their back on God when Cain kills Abel and Lamech murders and the Tower of Babel, the golden calf, and on and on and on. And because of that, they were cut off from the source of life, which is God, and they're underneath his condemnation. But God, who is holy and just, is also a father. So God took on flesh and became a man called Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth lived demonstrating the perfect life. And then Jesus went to the cross and on the cross, the father poured out all of his wrath, turned his back on the son. And when Jesus took the wrath of the father, then Jesus turned the father's heart back toward his image bearers. And those that believe in Jesus, he turns their hearts back to the father so they can want to get, once again, have a loving relationship. The gospel, right? Have you heard that before? Okay. I'm going to do it a second time. I'm going to change it to a different paradigm. In the beginning, there was God, the ever existing one, and God created everything. And in that creation, he created an image bearer that he might have a face-to-face love relationship with. But love demands a choice. And so the image bearers chose to turn their backs on the father and they ate of the forbidden fruit. But God came after them in the garden and God came to Adam and Eve and said, listen, you blew it, but there's hope. There's coming the seed of the woman and he will crush the serpent's head. There's hope. But the image bearers turned their back on God again when Cain killed Abel. And God came after Cain. And he said, Cain, I'll put a mark on you and I'll protect you. Don't worry about it. But then the image bearers turned their back again on God. When Jacob tried to seize the prophecy by deceit and dishonor and trickery, but God came after Jacob in Genesis 28 and said, I'll be beside you and I will bless you and I'll be with you and I'll make all my promises come true to you. But the image bearers turned their back again on God. So God sent them the law that might lead them back to him. But the image bearers chose the golden calf instead. So God sent to them prophets that might tell them about his goodness. But the image bearers killed the prophets and turned their back on God. So God sent them into exile so that they might hunger for him and love him. But the image bearers chose idols 
instead. So God became a man, Jesus. And he lived on earth to demonstrate to you and me the father's heart, that he is a pursuing God. And so he pursued a woman at the well who had five husbands and now was living with a man that was not her husband. And God pursued her. And Jesus meets a woman caught in adultery who people want to kill. And Jesus says, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. And he says, woman, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Jesus calls a man, a tax collector, the worst, most despicable character known in the New Testament out of a tree and says, let's have dinner tonight. And he demonstrates over and over the heart of the father that's pursuing us. But we, the image bearers, turned our back on Jesus. And we said, we will not have this man rule over us, crucify him. And so we crucified him and we sinned against him and we hurled insults at him and we sinned violently our sins into the son. But the son on the cross said, father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And on the cross, Jesus demonstrated the heart of the father toward you and me. And Jesus, because of that, turns our hearts from stone into hearts of flesh that can be turned back to the disposition of the father. And not only that, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to be with you forever. And I'm going to give you right now my Holy Spirit that's going to dwell in you and become a part of you, that you are my very temple. And this is the good news. They're different. And if you're saying, oh man, I don't know about that. There's two paradigms. I could use scripture to defend either one. I think it's very important to keep those both in your mind. And I'll give you some texts that I think begin to back up God's disposition towards us. It's just like the second story. Look at Isaiah chapter 30. I'll read it for you. Verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One, This is bringing up God's holiness. Thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise the word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be in you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly. And among its fragments, not a shard is found from which to take up fire from a hearth or to dip out water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. The image bearer turns his back. No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. 
A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. And at the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. The image bearer says, no, no, no. And what's the disposition of the father? Verse 18, therefore, Yahweh waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For Yahweh is a God of justice and blessed are all those who wait for him. Interesting. Isaiah 57. I'm on an Isaiah kick right now. Verse 17. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. You're being unjust. God gets angry at sin. No doubt about it. I struck him. I'm disciplining him as a child. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I tried, God says, but he kept backsliding. So what's the disposition of God then? What's God's disposition to this sinner? Look at verse 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. The backsliding, turn their back on God. I'm gonna heal him. One more, I could do this for a long time. I won't. Hosea, if you know the story of Hosea, it's brilliant. Uh, yeah, that's all I need to say. Verse 21 of chapter two. It's summing up this incredible kind of story. In that day, I'll answer, declares Yahweh. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. The people that have had no mercy, I'll have mercy on them. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, his heart will be changed. You are my God. By the way, Paul picks up this argument in the book of Romans to argue the same thing. You can read it if you want. It's God's disposition towards us. He pursues us. He comes after us. And if you're saying to yourself right now, Matt, that just sounds too good to be true. Okay, now you're getting the gospel. Now you're finally scratching it. You get the gospel. If you're ever saying, man, that's just too good to be true. Okay, you're finally getting the gospel. All right? Well, why would God do this? Why would God be this pursuing one, forgiving one, merciful one, gracious one? Why? Here's why. I'm going to give you an illustration that comes from marriage counseling, comes from being married for 17 years. I'm going to give it to you. Perhaps you can say this same thing has happened in my marriage. All right. So you've been married for a long time. The wife one day comes to the husband and says to the husband, honey, you don't do fill in the blank anymore. Ever heard that from your wife? You don't kiss me before you go to work. You don't kiss me and say, I love you before we go to bed. You don't hug me enough. You don't take out the garbage. You don't make coffee in the morning for me anymore. Whatever, something has changed, right? 
you don't fill in some kind of blank anymore. And so the husband's like, oh, okay. Note to self, more hugging, kissing, I love you, whatever it is, right? Okay, all right. So that evening, the husband kind of remembers, click. Oh yeah, she said that. So what does the husband do? Gives the wife a hug or a kiss or says, I love you to the wife. And what does the wife say? You're only doing that because I told you to. (laughs) And the husband says, totally right. Yeah, okay. (laughs) And then the wife says, it's meaningless if I have to tell you to do it. And the husband goes, ah, this is too complicated. (laughs) Just tell me what to do. Anyone? No, no. Random, totally random, huh? So the wife is right. What she's asking for is right. She's asking that your life is shaped by your relationship. That you're not coming and saying, I love you because you set an alarm on your iPhone, 8.30 a.m. say, I love you to wife, right? That's not what she wants. She doesn't want laws and rules and these kind of things that guide you. She wants you to be guided by the face-to-face love relationship you guys have for each other. And anything less than that, she goes, I don't want that. Okay? I think that's God as well. Like God doesn't want gridded, all right, all right, 8.30, I gotta do this. All right, nine o'clock. He doesn't want that. And so God... God becomes the merciful, gracious, incredible one so that it starts to shape our lives in a way that when we see his goodness and his graciousness, we like those in Hosea says, say, oh, you're my God. Oh, you're my God. It's Romans 2.4. It is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. It's his disposition towards us to come after us time and time and time again. That begins to shape our lives in such a way that now we're responding to this way that God is instead of white knuckled, gritted teeth. I got to do it. He doesn't want that. He wants hearts. That's why the Bible says this. Their, Their lips profess me, but their heart is far from me. God doesn't want that. He wants real relationship face to face. And so God comes after us time and time and time again to begin to shape us into the kind of people that he wants. And when you look at the whole story of the Bible, here's what I believe. We look at the whole story of the Bible, the cross is not something that God did 2000 years ago. The cross is who God is. The reconciling, pursuing, Emmanuel one that will go to any length to bring his people back, even if it kills him. And it did. The cross makes so much sense then. He'll go to any length to get his people back. I will pursue you. I will run after you. I'm not going to kill my enemies. In fact, I'm going to let my enemies kill me so I can turn them into my friends. This my friends, is the good news. And when you get this, here's what it did for me. It dismantled Frankenstein. It dismantled Frankenstein. And my life now has been on a trajectory that's so much healthier because I realize 
God is the same God that met Jacob at Bethel in Genesis 28. And he has been pursuing me and coming after me and gracious and merciful to me. And then now I pray this, shape my life to look like that. How I deal with sinners, not wrathful, angry, but rather God help me to be merciful and help me to be gracious and help me to be forgiving and help me to be all those qualities that Lord, you've been to me. Help me be that for other people. Help me to love you and love people. To me, that's the gospel. And maybe this morning, this is a paradigm you needed because you've seen God as only the wrathful, angry one and you've run from him. And I think today God would say, no, I've been coming after you. I've been coming after you just like I did for Cain and just like I did for Adam and just like I did for Eve and just like I did for the Tower of Babel people and just like I did for my people in the wilderness and just like I did for Jacob, just like I did for Jacob. And maybe you need to respond to that love today. So we have baptism today. So in the book of Acts chapter two, it says this, there's a message preached and people say, what should I do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent, change your mind about the way you saw God. He's not that. Oh, what is he? He's your heavenly father who's gone to every length to grab you. He's your heavenly father that meets with you when you're at the very, very pit and says, I'll be with you. I'll be Emmanuel for you. And if that's you, I'm gonna pray and dismiss us. And you come up afterwards and you get baptized and you have a new understanding of who the heavenly father is, that he's the one that has been tracking you down month after month, year after year, because he loves you. And so Jesus, thank you for setting me free. Some of the, for some of the weird ideas I had about you. I pray for those in here that maybe, just maybe, have done the same thing I did. I pray that we might see you as our gracious, loving, heavenly father that runs down the sinner to the point of his own death. That's who you are. That we might look at the cross, not as some distant event, but the cross exemplifies you because you say that you are in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world to yourself. That's your goal. That's your desire. And I pray for any in here who have not been reconciled to you. May this day they take Acts 2 to heart and repent and be baptized, knowing you're the heavenly father that's been loving and running after them for years. You're the one that leaves the 99 and goes after the one stray. And once you get that one stray, you rejoice more than in the 99 who are in the fold. Thank you for being so good. Shape us by that love, I pray. And I ask this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.